Hey everyone, this is Elms. I'm just chiming in because Rodney and I don't really know what we're doing. We're figuring it out as we're going along. And for this particular episode, we forgot to tell you to please like, review, comment, subscribe, do the whole shebang for the podcast. It'll really help us out as far as getting the word out and getting people to become more aware of the podcast. Um, additionally, thanks for tuning in and listening to this aside. Thanks for tuning into Homebrew Homebrew today. I'm Elmer. I'm one of your co-hosts, as, and uh, I'm here with co-host Rodney. Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, Rodney, what's up with you? Anything fun to report? Uh, not really. It's been kind of a boring week here. The weather's kind of dreary, and everything's slowed down. Rob, how about you? Yeah, just work. This is the exciting thing that I'm doing. Hopefully, this this goes well, and everyone enjoys what we're doing. I'm sure they're gonna love this weather-related content. It's really, <laughs> it's what we're known for. We're here today with a very good friend of mine. He's a great role player, and he's very active in the LARP community. His name is Craig. Craig, would you like to take a second to introduce yourself to our viewer? Oh, <laughs> Hi. Uh, yeah, my name is Craig Plazoni. I am currently residing in the great state of Michigan. I'm working up here as an electrical engineer. I'm originally from Indiana, same state as Elmer do a lot of live action role playing is like the main focus I do, but I also do a lot of D&D. I really have been enjoying 5th edition. Uh, since 5th edition came out, I've been DMing. Uh, before that, I really didn't DM very much. That's really what got me into DMing. And then I decided to do my own homebrew world uh, a couple of years ago. And so that's kind of why I have come to this podcast. Yeah, because none of us are great about staying within the lines. So we end up you know, going our own way and creating our own games. So we're going to talk to Craig a little bit about his gaming experience, the things he likes, the things he dislikes. Specifically, we're going to touch a little bit on the big guy's small mouth game system, because Craig and I played that pretty badly together in high school. Then he's going to wrap up by telling us a little bit about some Game Master notebook he's going to be providing to all of you for free. That'll be awesome. We're going to just uh, jump right in. Craig, how long have you been playing role-playing games? Since you met me, because that's when we started, <laughs> right? So sophomore year in high school, so then I would have been, what, 15? I was. That's 23 years ago. Even when we met, you already had been playing some online role-playing games. Was that, you know, rooms. I was actually thinking about that, because my AOL chat rooms, right, I was doing some role-playing games, but I think that was actually after our first session. I'm pretty sure what happened was, is we did that first session at Galactic Greg's in Valparaiso, and then the next week when we didn't meet again, because you, like, you were doing it like every two weeks or something like that, or even after that game was over, I immediately like looked for other content. You know, so I was like, what else can I do? And that's when I found role-playing on AOL chat rooms, which really was a combat system more than it was role-play, but there was still a lot of role-play with that. Which, role-playing in AOL chat rooms was a really safe search for a 15-year-old to do, right? <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, I did run into some things reflecting now was uh, not suitable content. For me. Um, one of the things Rodney and I talked about a little bit in, in previous in the previous episode is that we both kind of got the start with role-playing video games, Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy. Were you in camp too? Um, I did play a lot of Dragon Warrior, uh, So You Want to Be a Hero uh, series that was in the computer. Like you get that like the early 90s or mid-90s. King's Quest. I did like those games quite a bit. 
But I never into the role play aspects of them. I just like the systems, like, you know, getting equipment, leveling up your character, that type of thing. And really, obviously, that's appealing to D&D as well, because that's what a lot of the game is, is leveling up your character and building it and stuff. So it was nice to come to system that. But that's those games I did play a lot. Like, I played a lot of those games. Um, I was like, grew up on a computer because my dad was a computer programmer. So I had a computer in the mid-90s, even though at the time I was only like 11 and 12 and 13. And at that time, um, it was kind of rare to find people with personal computers. But my dad spent the money, I think it was like $3,000 for the first computer that he only had two megabytes of space on the entire hard drive. And we had to delete games just to play them, you know, type of thing. Yeah, I had the Commodore 64 that my family bought at a garage sale. <laughs> there were the, what, lowercase letters, uppercase letters, and then you had the symbol button put out the weird, uh, the weird symbols for every key. The, the ASCII chart yeah i think so like remember nerds when they animated the uh the two people in the first movie oh yeah i did actually play some muds now that i think about it too i forgot about those those the the one text-based only games but yeah believe it or not some of those are still up you still have an active player base. I think I tried some out after high school where they now have like a program you can run and it logs into the different servers because normally you have to do it through like whatever it was provided. I forget what it was. It actually ran in like your DOS command, right? But now right, that right. program, a lot of the a lot of those mods use the same program and you just type in the address it's going to and then it has its own UI. There's actually built-in commands for going northwest, southeast as opposed to you typing in. <laughs> Combat roles can be automated and there's like macros and stuff you can do. Yeah, they, uh, they've really streamlined the process from the the good old days where you had to go on a shady website on GeoCities and print out a list of the MUD addresses and then go and log in. Never brave enough to get into one of those. It always seemed very intimidating, so I never quite got there. I know that I introduced you to tabletop role-playing, like you said earlier, at Galactic Craig's back in the day. Unfortunately, we're all extremely old and I'm having memory issues. What was that first game like? Do you remember what your character was? I played a ranger. I don't remember his name at all. But the reason why I played ranger is because the time I just was like super interested in the nature kind of stuff. So I was just like, oh, ranger is kind of cool. And it's specifically right. Rangers in second edition were kind of like a specialization, right, of a fighter. Like they were, they were what you did if you had better stat, good good stat rolls, right? Because that was the time when you couldn't play a wizard or a paladin or a ranger or any of those unless you actually had like. You know at least a 14 dex and only you know whatever the requirements were right that was actually like legit i rolled well and i was like and that was when you had roll strength first you rolled dex next right so like you rolled your stats you're like okay this is what i have this is what you know this is what i'm gonna play with i remember being super stoked about playing it and we only played like i think three or four sessions and then you got like really upset at everybody because we were just not like <laughs> playing very well and i think at one point you you turned my character into a bad person like i had laughed at something happening my character laughed at something happening that was bad about nature and you're like well we're pulling your character craig it's now a raver or whatever it was called <laughs> yes like to clear up confusion there i think it was actually a ravager but everyone called them ravers um, uh, okay so, i mean it's not like you had glow sticks and a fire and you were at a a big music party in the middle of the woods <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that was not one of my shining moments now that I look back on it. I think I was taking it a little too seriously back then. It has been over 20 years, so hopefully I've matured somewhat. But uh, it's 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 hard though when you know when you when you got players not really gelling with you, especially when you're inexperienced as a as the DM. That's that's like one of the, the one of the first hassles or hurdles you have to really get over, you know, to be a good GM is you know you got to get everybody back on 
back on page. One of our purposes here is to share our stories so that, you know, new gamers who think they're going to run Critical Role as their first game understand that everybody messes up in the beginning and things don't always go great. Actually, a pretty nice segue, Craig. Can you tell us about a character or game that you played that didn't really work out the way you wanted it to? So the first game that I ran of this homebrew that we're going to be talking about in a bit. So there, there have been four games that have been run in this homebrew. And the first one just like I had a, a, a what happened was I had a nebulous plan, right? But I had like very few specific details. And as we started to go into the campaign, I realized very quickly that I was way over my head. I had no idea what to tell them. Everything I was just going to make up on the spot with no concept of where that would lead or where they would go to, right? I had like what the land looked like some major cities and like that's it like no other information and so but, but they were like chomping at the bits to play a game and so i you know i ran this game it kind of ended up being basically a one shot even though we played like three sessions but like at by the time we got to that point other people luckily had didn't want to play anymore because they you know it was the group breakup where people's times didn't match up anymore and all that stuff so i was like Whew, all right and so that way i could the next get next time we played this i could just fast forward in time and like, oh, no, it's now this time period. And it's different than what that was. <laughs> but uh, at that point, then I had a lot more information, a lot more idea what I wanted to do. Scheduling the Grim Reaper that kills so many games. But it sounds like it worked out for you this time. Yes, because I didn't want to play the game anymore because I needed more time. It was very stressful and I felt a lot of anxiety. So talked a little bit about how you're going to go into a homebrew game of yours. I was just curious, though, have you ever ran a module or been involved in a a game that was run from a module? Yeah, the starter edition. So when the fifth, like I said, when the fifth edition came out, I really wanted to play it, but I also wanted to help run it for the first time because I thought the system was a lot easier for DMs to get into, which has actually been the case because it's a lot easier for you to do things and to get players to do things as well because things are not as nebulous and you're not bogged down the math as much, which which actually I think did hinder it for a lot. Those like minor AC bonuses and things like that for advantages in combat. So it makes it a lot easier to be like, oh, well, you have the high ground, so you have an advantage as opposed to I'll give you plus three and like you kind of guess <laughs> which word you're giving them or maybe you can look up in this you know giant manual like, okay, plus two for the height because of this other thing to get plus one, you know, and so that kind of thing. So, um, but the starter edition was what I started with. I actually sat down, read the entire thing. I thought, ah, eh, this is actually kind of a cool like setting. You know, I've never really experienced Sword Coast before. So I was like, let me just, just do, like dive in. And I ended up running it at Gen Con the first year that D&D got released. Um, I just like, basically, you know, like the, as much as we could that night. And then um, later on, I ran it as actually a couple of games. Elmer, you were there for that first game that I ran legitly. Like you yeah. played the the pal the pal the I think it was a paladin, right? That was the folk hero that had the dragons kill his town or whatever, right? Yeah, I was obsessed with killing the dragon, and uh, I got to play with the uh, the fifth head feats a little bit. I used I, I think the defender one, where you could oh this yeah you the, yeah you took the def you took the sentinel and the right, the defender at the same time. So you had the pull arm that when people moved into range, you could do uh, you could do the attacks. And then if if they moved in your range, you could do attacks. And if you successfully attacked them, they stopped. So, and if somebody attacked an ally, you also attacked them. So yeah, I was just taking the full defense action. So they're at disadvantage to hit me and I just using the attacks of opportunity. That, that was actually kind of interesting. That, that type of defensive fighting I've never seen in D&D game before too. So it was actually interesting that that path was opened up. Yeah, I don't think it was really a viable option in earlier editions. 
If you're not hitting, you're not winning. <laughs> so what do you think? Did you did you like playing a module or do you prefer doing homebrew? So I like the module from the perspective of it gave me a world. It gave me the NPCs that existed. It told me kind of what was going on. And it let me know like, hey, when people get to this town, this is what the NPCs are currently doing. There's this group doing this thing over here. There's a relationship between these two people. Those types of things are cool because... You know, when you're talking about running it, you can be like, okay, th these two people hate each other, and you can kind of play off of that in role play. You can give players, you know, you who have things already given to you that you can be like, all right, you have like five different things you can do if you want to, because the module has them all in here already, right? Whereas if you're trying to do it yourself, you have to be like, okay, I got to come up with five different encounters possibly that these players can maybe do, so it's varied where they can find things to do. Uh, I didn't like my I don't like modules from the perspective of they have an expected like the players will eventually get to this point. And if they don't ever get to that point, there's no like there's nothing beyond that. Right. And uh, preparing for something like that is kind of hard because you have to you don't know about what's supposed to be on that. So now you've got to make it up, which is fine, I guess, for some people. But when you're kind of operating within that thing, I just didn't like it. Like so like when the other modules came out, I kind of was just like, eh. I kind of don't want to pay first of all, pay money. It's like $50 for these modules, right? And then on top of it, I watched other people play them, and it just ended up being very too rigid. So I just didn't like it as much. Yeah, I found one of the issues that I had trying to run a module too was that I always was having trouble getting players to care about what was happening. Inevitably, there'd be somebody who decided that everything in the module was a joke. Like, it would get very frustrating when you spend a lot of time preparing for something, and then the entire module is just made into a joke by someone at the table. Actually, Elmer, didn't we do that to somebody? Wasn't it April that we were in her game, and we got to the end of the first can like first session, and then we had bought... We ended up with too much gold, so we bought a tavern, and, like, we retired. Okay, my plan wasn't to totally <laughs> game, but I think that's kind of what ended up happening. That, that particular adventure path was by Pezo, and it was kind of weird because they sold it that the entire adventure was going to be an urban adventure taking place in the city, but then, you know, two of the six books were outside of the city. I oh. thought I was playing along by buying into the city, but as it turned out, I was just making someone else's life really difficult, even though I didn't realize it at the time. I, I really thought we were joking at the end there because we joked about how all this money we had and we're just like, well, let's just, you know, <laughs> retire. I, I, I think she took it a little too seriously, right? Because we, we talked about it and, you know, as a DM, if somebody joked about that kind of thing, I wouldn't think they're serious either, right? Like doing that kind of thing. Because uh, it was just something out of character for all of our characters to decide this, right? <laughs> like they were going to retire inside this town and, and get a tavern. Yeah, she got really offended by it. Um, yeah, I feel... I, I feel kind of bad about that. And actually, uh, we're going to be talking to April in a future episode. So I wonder if she'll um, bring it up. <laughs> this when I ask her about things that went horribly wrong. <laughs> what do you think are your main sources of inspiration for both your adventures and your characters? Uh, most of it's been books I've read or movies, references. Sometimes I just get like cool monsters that I see or hear about. And then it's just something interesting for me to like throw in. Like an example of an inspiration I had was, did you watch that live action Zelda parody that came up where they like spoofed there's going to be a live action Zelda movie? Did you ever watch that video? Oh, oh no, I didn't hear anything about that. So it was a while ago. This was like 10 years ago, I think, that this video came out. And it's like at the end, you find out that it's a parody. It looks actually a really high production value. What it was is like some movie student or theater student uh, that was doing video editing put this together as like a satire thing that they could put together. And it looked actually pseudo legit until, like I said, once you started getting into it, you're like, wait, this is ridiculous. And one of the monsters, remember the, the, the spinny guys from Zelda, right? The ones in the desert. 
they actually oh, yeah. put together like a live action version of them and it looked really frightening and like what the heck is this thing and so i decided to put those in one of my games because i was like that sounds really cool and frightening like how mechanically can i get this to work it's really just like a lot of like you said like i said it's just movies books that i've read uh, golden compass was actually a big inspiration for the current homebrew that we're going to talk about and i'll talk about why that is stuff like that so what did you call the desert spinning thing in your game that's a good question I know they used the term a lot once I told them because they thought it was hilarious. I would be tempted to make it like a horrible pun, like spinster. <laughs> oh my god. Sand spinners. That's all called them as sand spinners. <laughs> oh, I can just yeah. imagine. So the way they worked, if you want to know more about them, is they had the spinners. So if you're within like a 30-foot radius of them, you would just get take damage uh, just constantly while you're like in the range. So the idea is that they have these like long tentacles. And then if you got within 20 feet of them, they could grab you with their tentacle. And if they grapple you, they pull you 20 feet towards them the next round. And the next round, they're pulling you up inside of them. And they're just all have like razor blade teeth spinning in different directions in the middle. And they just grind you towards the top. <laughs> and so some of them got captured and were like looking at the mouth and trying to get out. And uh, they actually ended up killing it. Uh, killing one of them there's three of them just by uh you know launching a fireball into its mouth <laughs> which i said did extra damage which kind of was the point i was like that's going to be their weak spot is where you can look inside their mouth and so if you fire something into it it'll do you know they're not they're 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 weak against it so i don't know i'm picturing them with like like spinning teeth inside almost and just thinking about like tossing a bowling ball in there <laughs> just grinding <laughs> Just to see what would happen. Okay, we, we've touched on your game a bit. We know that your world has terrifying things in the desert. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about the game you're running right now? So, uh, we just actually got done with Act 1, is what I'm calling it. Basically, the, the first story arc. Players all started out in the city of Harbin. And Harbin is this gigantic city. Think about, like, a city that really should be five cities, but it's just, you know, one big city. So it's like a sprawling, urban area. You try to walk from end to end, it would take you all day type of thing. It's just one city that grew really big, or is it, like, five cities that grew into one another? Because I've always kind of wanted to do that with different city styles. That's a good question. I never really actually delved into that. What started off as a, an elven city center, at some point in elven history, the group of aristocrats decided that they didn't really want to stay insulated away from everybody else inside this lush forest that had a lot of resources. And so uh, basically a noble family grabbed a hold of the major city, got control of it through a coup, and they just started demolishing all the wood because the wood was so expensive and everybody wanted it to help build like infrastructure in other cities that they just started logging it and started expanding the city. And this also is built around a portal, which they control. Um, right now, there's the city, the, the world is transversed. If you want to go large distances, there's portals that go to each of the major cities. They have to go through Harbin, though. Harbin controls the power. They know how to power them. They're the only ones who know how to operate. So if you want to transport something, say, from like one city to another, but not to Harbin, you have to go through Harbin, let it sit there until the next shipment, and then go back. I'm getting some Capital of the Evil Empire feels from Harbin. Is that is that accurate? <laughs> I don't actually know what that is. Well, I'm just thinking, like, it's a whole group that is set on clear-cutting the forest that controls all of the transportation. Like, it seems like if you're going to have, like, your evil empire from Final Fantasy 3 slash 6, like, this would have been where they'd be seated. Correct. Like that's that's that is an inspiration for this. Like Final Fantasy VII too. Like the way Shinron, like that Capra Corporation. But I, I wanted it to be kind of ironic a little bit, I guess, because the elves are the ones doing it. <laughs> like right. Like they, like literally right. Currently in the history 
that is the only place where the elves are is this city all the other elves what happened to them they they're dead or they joined harbin that's basically what happened do you use mysteries in your world building? Like, if it were me and I was in that position, I would just say, and nobody knows what happened with the other elves. You know, so if the players want to investigate, they could learn a little bit. Correct. I actually like that way, too. It's like, I'll leave the open-ended things that I don't have necessarily, like, completely spelled out because wasting time on that kind of thing can bog you down when you're trying to write out all the details. Well, this isn't a detail I need to write out until the players go, okay, what actually is going on with this? And be like, okay, <laughs> now we need to be more specific about what's happening in that. But yeah, I want that to be a, a, something that they maybe investigate into, especially if they got into the aristocracy. Because right now they don't have any contacts with anybody in the inner city to where this, the, the big, like, you know, all the rich people live. So they're not really connected to don't know who's exactly there. But that's the type of thing that I'm going to, uh, I already have ideas about things I want to do there, but I don't know specific. So what is your favorite event that's happened in Harbin in this campaign? There was a party at a big like warehouse type place that they were like investigating. And because they were actually being, in, had been invited there. And a lot of the um, younger elven aristocrats were there, you know, so like the guys that were like the sect, the, the younger generation. So they're not involved yet in the politics or whatever. And the shenanigans the players used to try to infiltrate this place when it really wasn't that hard. Like I designed it kind of like the guards kind of, if you, if you could kind of know, either give them some money or just knew one of the people that was there at the party and said, Hey, I'm with that person. They kind of just let you in because they knew that all their money was going to be made off of selling them liquor and things like that. Cause that nothing was free there. <laughs> they had to pay for everything. And the, the shenanigans that these players used to like, turn into a small spider, climb into the, into the window, get into the bathroom, try not to be seen. You know, one person actually, like, got another aristocrat to date them, so they went on actually a full, like, spent weeks, like, trying to get a date with this person so they could get invited to it. Like, all this stuff, and I just kind of was like, man, they're really trying really hard. So <laughs> and the players then, created the obstacle and then figured out the creative solutions around the obstacle. Yeah, they never really investigated like what the requirements were to get into the party. They just assumed, because it was being hosted by the young elven aristocratic family, that it would be hard to get into an exclusive. Kind of but really, it just, you just had to be in the inner city. Like You just had to get into that part of the city, and if you could, then they obviously would have just let you in. So how did you feel about that? Like, Did you enjoy the diversion, or were you frustrated that something that you thought wasn't going to take any time turned into, apparently, a several weeks courtship? Like, As a GM, I don't feel the time. <laughs> I love the madness now of this kind of stuff because the things that players come up with to sol solve things that are not really like things you hadn't planned to be uh, obstacles, but they make obstacles because of the choices they make are actually more hilarious than any obstacle you could put in their path sometimes. Sometimes just setting up the situation like, you know, there's a temple high up on a mountain and the path is really treacherous. And that's the only information you give them initially, right? It's like that's the first introduction to it. And then when you give them that, they're like, okay, well, we should go try to find, like, this type of person that can help us through the mountain. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to make it, probably. And then they go through, like, this entire ordeal trying to find somebody to help them. And then, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And you didn't even plan that. But they have now said, hey, this is what we're going to do. And it's like, all right, let's go through what that entails, requires. And your plan maybe was just to make it so that they had to do roles to get up the mountain, you know? I, I could see myself as a player getting derailed there and being like, I need to find somebody with a flying machine or I need to somehow capture a wyvern so I can get up there. Like I, I could totally or, or, that. At one point you mentioned there was like a Griffin farm at one point for flavor. And they're like, Oh, we should go there and see if we can hire Griffin flyers to help us fly us to the temple. And you're like, Oh no. Okay. That now I got to get some NPCs. That is exactly the type of nonsense you did to me in high school. 
<laughs> I'm just thinking about like uh, there was another game I had where I mentioned for flavor there was just this random goat in a field. The entire party decided that that goat was spying on them. Like either it was a druid that was shape changed or it was somebody's familiar goat. So we ended up having about an hour long diversion trying to figure out what the deal was with this goat. Uh, I just decided it was hard and was hoping to get some food from the players. Rodney, what would be your solution to get up Craig's Mountain? I'd probably go ask that goat how to get up the mountain. <laughs> A little crossover action? Yeah. So, not necessarily just limited to that game, Craig, but in general, what is your favorite player, Your either your favorite character you've ever played or your favorite NPC you've ever gotten to play? So, I wanted to actually split this into two options because... I want to talk a little bit about Big Eye Small Mouth because we haven't talked about it, right? We've been talking about a lot of D&D. And so I'll tell you my favorite Big Eye Small Mouth one and my favorite D&D one. So my favorite uh, uh, Big Eye Small Mouth character to play was actually the one that I played with uh, our mutual friend, Josh. Um, it was like he, made, he designed this world that was just the simple concept was it's the Matrix world, but... The, but the robots won. So the human still scorched the sky. That thing happened. And sorry, sorry, not the robots won. The humans won. So the humans scorched the sky. They, they succeeded. The robots failed. And the robots now are basically no longer exist. Or if you find one now, it's going to be like very small remnants of them, but nothing major. But at the same time, this is a fantasy world. Vampires, werewolves, and all the, all the creatures of the dark exist. So as soon as the sky got scorched, no more sun. So vampires now rise up. Werewolves now like don't have access to the moon. There's like all these problems that arose from there. And he just made this world out of that concept and allowed us to play anybody. We could play a werewolf. We could play a vampire. We could play a human. You could play a robot. Like there was like so many different options you could play. Um, and this was this was the anime style. And so I was like, I'm gonna play a werewolf. And then we start. But I was the only one that did that. And so we kind of had to go into the mythos of what's going on with werewolves. Like how would I shape change and things like this. And we decided that. There was a group of scientists that the werewolves hired to solve the problem, figure out a way of breeding werewolves so that they could shape change again. And they ended up breeding like a super shape changer werewolves. Basically, I could shape change at any time. I could take any shape, not just humanoid shapes. I could take like I could change my skin to iron. I could change, you know, to basically full shape shifting type of stuff. Yeah, I thought you were going to jump into Bishon and Ink there when you were talking about. That was my favorite game that I played. So you just asked me for my favorite character. Bishon oh, okay. <laughs> and Ink was still my favorite game that I've ever played, just because of how hilarious that the ending was, with you actually legitimately getting upset about my my appearance score being higher than yours when you found out, <laughs> because that was how we determined the hierarchy of the organization was who had the highest appearance. But I always had hair over my face, so you couldn't see it. Yeah, because you had to play into the '90s anime trope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually, um, I actually have trouble remembering a lot about that game. I remember that we all made Bishonen, just because, you know, that was the entire concept for our mercenary group. Do you actually remember the story, besides, you know, us having the uh, who's prettier argument during most of the campaign? I think, well, so we accidentally ran in as a one-shot, right? One shot, right? We were supposed to do more games, but we just never did. I don't even remember who was running it. Who was the, who was the DM? It was... Because me and you were players. Yeah, it was Josh. Oh, okay. I don't know why I just didn't want to run another episode. All I remember is that I had a crack, and that's actually what caused my hair to go up because I did my I did my ultimate lightning attack, and then my hair like went went away when I did the attack, and then that's how everyone saw how pretty I was. I had to immediately spend my points to increase my appearance, which the problem was it was capped at five in that system. Correct. 
was only at four. I, I believe I was, I think maybe we were tied because I was at four, I think. I think you were also at four. And then you, out of spite, immediately changed it to five the next <laughs> when we never played again. <laughs> well, I had to be the leader. I, I mean, I'm fine with you being the leader, just I was prettier. But, but <laughs> you could only be the leader if you were the prettiest. That was the concept. I know, it, was, it was a great concept. I liked it. But was that your favorite twist in a game? The fact that uh, your character was secretly the leader the whole time? It was a re- I thought a really cool twist. Factured it a little bit, but it was it was a cool moment to actually bring about. Um, so as far as D and D though, the favorite character I played uh, was definitely that game we played with you for jo- Elmer for like three years. It was just me, you, and Josh. I still remember though, like amazing moments that we had where you know me and Josh prevailed over what was going on. I mean, you even had me play a side character in that game, right? We had the um, I think it was a ranger too. I think this was your redemption arc for my ranger. You let me play another ranger, but it was just me and you playing, and it was role play with the with the one with the death ruin in his hand, right? Like oh. the Suicoden uh, throwback you threw in. Yeah, that game was a mashup of Suicoden, the uh, Mercedes Lackey books, the uh, main correct. Movie. Yeah, and I had never re- I had never played Suicoden. I watched you play the game, but I never watched the story, right? I only watched you play really like like the actual combat. And I never read Mercedes Lackey, so it's like a really good opportunity for you to actually like, introduce me to this these concepts that I've never heard before, right? Like the way you did magic, the ruin system, and all that stuff. That that world like really is what kept me with D anD. d The most ridiculous part of it that I remember was one weekend where we played, and it was a Friday evening, Saturday, and then into Sunday, and we played something like twenty hours out of thirty six. It was an insane amount of gaming, which. I mean, I, right now I'm doing five-hour sessions, right? And then at, at the end of five hours, I'm just like, like, oh, we're getting the stuff that I didn't plan, and I'm just like, okay, it's time to stop, guys. I think I think that was good, right? And it's really because I'm like, I need to plan the next part. <laughs> I, can't, I can't go on, otherwise I'm going to mess something up. I've gotten to where uh, my sessions tend to last three to four hours, you know, not much longer than that, and I always plan to have some kind of either a cliffhanger or a complete resolution at the end. I feel like at this point, like in my life, that five hours is this plenty. I, mean, I feel like if you're going over five hours, when you get older, it's just kind of, you know, you're struggling at that point. <laughs> I do at some point want to do one of those charity streams where you try to uh, run a D&D game or a, you know, different tabletop RPG. They make donations as you play. That would be awesome. That'd be kind of cool. I would like that. Yeah, I need to look more into how those actually work, though. Is it like a walkathon where people say they'll pay X amount per mi- per? Well, I guess it'd be X amount per hour or per encounter. Um, I don't know. I was just thinking about it. I don't know if you remember, but there was at least one occasion when Galactic Rays did a fundraiser, and what they did was they had uh, games going on there. You could donate money to cheat. So, like, if you wanted to re-roll something, you could donate a dollar to whatever charity they were doing it for. I, I think that'd be a really interesting concept to see in a stream. Be, I would love to do that. That'd be really cool to see. I would love to like to do that. And then like have the straight players like I'm gonna donate, but I don't want to re-roll, like, you know, like type of thing. I'm just donating so nobody can change my diet results. One of the things I was gonna say, by the way, uh, Elmer, was one of the things that interests me about that game, by the way, with that character that I played with you, the progression system you had with the runes, because I feel like D&D games in general, even fifth edition, once you get to like that seventh and eighth plateau for like melee characters, especially, you have some interesting choices but after that, you're just doing the same thing over and over again. There's not really a lot of variability unless you play a caster. Whereas in your system, because the ruins allowed you to customize it, you can only have a couple of them at a time. Each one had different abilities, even for melee fighters. Like I had the one that was ridiculous that when it maxed maxed out, 
every single time I hit, right, I got to roll again. And as long as I kept hitting, I kept rolling until I just didn't hit. <laughs> it's interesting because they had a magical item in Dragon Magazine a few years ago. Um, actually, it was more than a few years ago. Dragon Magazine hasn't been around for like 10 years. But in a Dragon Magazine, they had a sword that was called the Probable Blade. And the way it worked was you rolled your d20. You're basically you got an attack for each like result that could happen lower than your original roll. So say you rolled an 18, then you'd, you'd resolve it for your 18, and then you'd resolve an attack for a 17, and then a 16, and then a 15, down until you missed. And that's one of those things that sounds super neat, but I wonder, like, actually being a player at the game, how incredibly frustrating that would be to have to sit there and listen to them try to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, we've talked a lot about things that you like about role-playing. What are some things you don't like as much? Like, what's your least favorite behavior that people tend to do at the table? I'm going to get some hate from this, but I'm actually going to get... Go for something that happened to Kevin, actually. So Kevin played some uh, games separate from me in World of Darkness. So he ended up playing like Vampire and Werewolf and things like that with another group. Of group Because those those usually end up being what I don't like, which is super serious role play. Those things, I just, I don't, I don't know, I just can't get into it. It's not as fun. I'm more interested in the more mechanical nature of the games. Like, I do like some kind of role play. I obviously like shenanigans, but I don't like it when it's like role play interactions between players that are serious, that can, that they take to that personal level almost, right? And that's what happened to Kevin. Like, he was, like, some serious thing was happening, but then, like, something happened that was, like, a little bit not serious, and Kevin cracked a joke about it. When people crack jokes during even serious parts of the game, it's usually, like, a funny, like, you know, reprieve, and it's fine, and you keep going. But in this case, they all yelled at him in character and like kept in character and be like, you just you need to watch your play. So you're trying to challenge me for alpha and like oh. blah, 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 because it was inter interrupting him, you know, and, he, and and that was like this like, all right, I got to get out of here. <laughs> you know, like this isn't this is going to be the group for me because Kevin, my husband, Kevin, he definitely has the same kind of humor and wants that we have. I mean, we have some differences, but like that type of thing, we're like, nah. But like that just makes me think about the thing in like a D&D &D game where you would make a pun about something. And they'd be like, oh, you said it at the table, so now you said it in character. And it's like, obviously, you know, that wasn't what my character would say in this situation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, sometimes I'll joke about that kind of thing if they're taking a long time to decide about things. Like, was that what you said finally? Like, after five minutes of deliberating? <laughs> but, like, I, I obviously mean it in jest. They just need to make a decision. But, like, yeah, like, Critical Role actually is what I, I, like, kind of goes into that a little bit too, right? They do that a lot. And I'm actually thankful that I don't have people that are looking for that level in my games because I'd be like, I was not for you. <laughs> I, I think it was, like, the beer and pretzel role-playing. What were you going to say, Rodney? I've, I've noticed that kind of um, a lot of times when I hear people taking their characters too seriously, it's usually World of Darkness for some reason. I mean, that's what the system's designed around. The, right. The, right. the abilities are just kind of whatever. It's a lot of D10s, some contested actions, kind of was thrown together. That game is all about the clans, the relationships between them, how you're supposed to act even. Like if you act outside of what it says in the book, people get mad at you. <laughs> it's like jeez <laughs> well i think that uh i think maybe vampire lends itself to that a little bit because of the subject matter because it's gothic horror which like being a bit maudlin and a bit dramatic is kind of parcel to that genre um you know there's also the possibility that as a group we've all only run into jerks who played world of darkness <laughs> <laughs> yeah that could be it <laughs> Because I, I remember, like, the few World of Darkness games that I attended with people who were outside of, like, my main circle. Um, it always felt like it was a bunch of, you know, people who secretly wanted to sleep with one another. And they were trying <laughs> to use the game as a medium to get there. 
Um, <laughs> that sounds like LARP role play. We can get into that later, though. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I did want to talk to you about about LARPing because I think you're a bit of an expert, and I don't think it's gotten quite the audiences of tabletop. So, could you just tell us a little bit about how you got into AmpGuard? Well, your nephew, first off, because yeah. he, was, he was playing with us, right? We're all playing D&D, &D, you're our DM, and your nephew was also playing with us. And he just randomly, you know, talked about a game that he played in Indianapolis because he had a friend of a friend also invite him. And so, you know, when I got there, this is, once again, I'm like in the middle, like this is like, the, this is like what, the first year of me meeting you, Elmer. And I was like playing, trying to play role-playing games like all the time. And so like when this came out, I was like, oh, this is super cool. And I really wanted to play a bard because I was getting into music at the time. And I was like, all right, let's play a bard. Um, you know, it's got cool abilities. The progression system in this game is super cool. Um, it's not as serious because when your, char your character can't actually die in this game, right? Like the LARP that I was playing, no one can actually permanently die. And so I was like, all right, this sounds like it'd be fun. And it was active outdoors. And it was also a new social group. But a 16-year-old brain at the time was just like, yes, let's do this. This is it. You know, this is something I can really get into. Feel for it ended up being the games themselves, like the actual combat system and the way the game is played more than the actual role play did. And I ended up getting wary of the role play over time because World of Darkness stuff. Like, like it's, you know, like, it's the same thing. Like, in the role play very seriously, it felt like everybody was, like, their own clicks. I want to give you a chance here to plug ah. your game, if you'd like. Sure. So, we, we so, can tell our our audience which game you play, like, where they can find the rules, how they would go about finding a group to play with. I'll preface this, that this, while this is a live-action role-playing, the last two letters of LARP could be kind of left off for our, our game because while we do have role play, a majority of our game is combat. Um, it's all it's like basically what I describe to people that have never played LARP before is that imagine you're playing a paintball game, but you're using swords and sorceries to complete the objectives instead of paintballs. So you have spell balls, you have verbal spells, you have you have foam swords, you're wearing armor, you can take extra hits. Like imagine like a King of the Hill game where you have three nodes controls and you have a wizard and a killer on your side. You're gonna do that for 30 minutes and the winner, you know, the winner is whoever had the most node control. That's the type of a game we have. So the game is called Amtgard. A-M-T-G-A-R-D. I've been playing it now for almost 22 years. We have like 12 classes you can play. You have a lot of games you can play. And it even has a lot of non-combat things you can do. So we actually do like arts and sciences competitions where people make things or sing or perform. And then you get basically awards based on that. We have an entire nobility system where you can help with the game. You can be in charge of a park. You can make your own park. All these things get you awards. We have a full knighthood system helping out the game or doing good things in the game. Uh, we even have like knighthood for being a battle master, so really good the full class gaming. We have knighthoods for people just helping out and people that run our events. You know, we have full camping events every three months um, where you actually like do a full like camp out and you get to play games every day and things like that and hang out and stuff. Really cool social atmosphere, really cool social gaming, and it's a way of getting out. It's like literally my exercise for the week is when I go to this because it gets me out of my chair, it gets me outside, and I really, really enjoy it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be playing it for 22 years. So. Okay, so, you know, say there's somebody who, you know, this is the first time they've ever heard of AmpGuard. How would they find the rules and how would they find a park? AmpGuard, A-M-T-G-A-R-D dot com. There you can find the rulebook in the document section, as well as there is an AmpGuard Atlas, which actually is kind of like a Google Maps. It will show you on a map uh, where things are around the nation, any parks that are registered. You can even recently and how many people have been playing each park. So if you have like multiple parks within an X number of distance, you can decide which one you want to go to. 
A lot of people have Facebook groups too. If you just look up AmpGuard on Facebook, you can find a lot of different groups on there too in the area. If you just like AmpGuard Texas, AmpGuard Indiana, whatever, you'll find like immediately tons of groups pop up of where people um, are playing. So. so say that somebody has never been to an AmpGuard park before. They've never played a LARP before, but they want to try it out. And like, what would you tell them to do to prepare themselves before they show up to their park for the first week? First of all, it's free, so don't worry about any kind of a cost or anything. Uh, we're a free-to-play game, not for profit organization. Uh, we have dues, but that's only for voting and for like, you know, things that you don't have to be involved in. You can just show up and never have to deal with that. Um, but the best thing to do is to have a learning atmosphere because even if you've done martial arts, even if you've done sword fighting in other games or like other like things, like say you like do fencing, like actual fencing. Um, the mechanics behind LARP buffer games is completely different. So understand you're going to be learning a lot of how to swing, swing our swords and how they work and how the combat works. Um, but the biggest thing is just uh, right now, for the most part, uh, bring a mask too, because a lot of our parks either require a mask to play or require you to be vaccinated, and you have to be masked when you come to show us your vaccination card. So that's, 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 that's one thing that you need to worry about bringing with you. But for the most part, most parks, you don't have to bring anything. People have loaner equipment for you to, to use. They have the rules there that you can read them. A lot of parks are really good at teaching people how to play. So I've been to a couple of the camping events, and they are fun you but like my experience was it was a good opportunity to get to hang out with people and you know hear some talented people perform and some not so talented but very good meaning people perform um <laughs> so i'm saying it's it's not something i do but it is a really good time you know if you show up to one in michigan you might run into craig so we were going to talk about big eyes small mouth a little bit and i mentioned it in a previous episode just talking to to rodney about different game systems but uh, could you give us a little bit of a description about what you feel that Big Eye Small Mouth is about and what their like core mechanic is? So Big Eye Small Mouth, uh, to me, is one of those systems that helps you create the system around the genre, right? Because normally, like if I'm playing in D and I want to play like a a like some kind of weird steampunk, I have to come up with a lot of different rules now for like how guns work things work, machines that people come across, these little things that you have to come up with like little rules about. Where a small mouth is all about, well, that is part of this generalized thing, and you can just have it in this thing that we already have designed for you to use. And so the being able to easily design genres or can be like, you know, the, the whole uh, magical girl thing. It could be some kind of like sci-fi thing. Um, all those things can be encompassed in the, the system, which is kind of nice. Um, it doesn't get into the more granular stuff that D&D has, though, that makes it kind of interesting and unique to people. Um, but uh, it definitely facilitates the role play and like the atmosphere a lot better. Um, the character customization, too, is just like ridiculous, right? You can make anything from an uh, uh, amoebas blob that actually has no intelligence that you're role-playing to, like, <laughs> like I said, a magical girl or some super mecha type of thing. So, Or a group of... Uh what, three really pretty men who are part of a mercenary agency. Yes, yes. <laughs> Mission Incorporated. <laughs> God. Like, I do like playing it because there are definitely, like, I remember the airship one that we were in. I thought that one was really cool, where we all had airships, and I was the one that designed the blimp that, that we were, that, that housed everybody's airships. Do you remember that one? Yeah, Mike like, had, had an AI teddy bear that could pilot their ship if they freaked out. 
Yeah, which which is kind of like kind of like almost implied that your character really didn't pile the ship the teddy bear did or whatever. Yeah, because my character was an extremely young fighter pilot whose parents had both died, so the bear was actually like a super science object that their parents had made to take care of them. Yeah, and I played like the old guy that had like most of my most of my limbs were replaced by steam steamwork stuff. And I had the giant blimp that had the railgun that fired us two miles back, right? Like, whenever I fired it, like, we went two miles backwards. <laughs> and we used it to escape our final combat. Yeah, that worked out really well. Um, but, but what don't you like about Big Ice? Um, the game can be really complicated for people to make characters with. I actually went, recently went to get uh, my roommate and another person involved in, in Big Ice Small Mouth. We were going to play the 1920s game again because I really liked that genre. Do, do I remember that, where you got to play with Al Capone and, like, there was all the... The different, I had the different gangsters from the 1920s. I wasn't in that one, but you've told me about it before. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Uh, this is right after we stopped playing with each other because we were farther apart. I remember this now. Sorry. Yeah, I think this was. Um, I think it was inspired kind of by the Gangs of New York movie, if I remember correctly. Correct. Yep, it inspired a lot by the Gangs of New York. So I thought it was kind of cool. Like that's that was that uh, that was a really cool. I like the and I was just like, let's. I didn't really want to do gang combat, but I knew I wanted to do something in the 1920s. So I actually downloaded 100 1920 songs like that genre, really like 1930s too, because it was like during the bootleg era, era, era. And I actually had a full map of Chicago and all that stuff. But you were saying that the character creation can be very complicated. Yeah, because even for that first game, it was hard to get people to, the, the 1920s game, it was hard to get people to make characters. <laughs> like, you know, I just want them, they didn't have a template, right, to like make their character with. And so, like, this time around, we went to go play that 1920s game again, and I'm, I'm telling them about the different gangsters, I'm talking about the setting, I'm kind of giving them some examples of characters they can make, but when they sit down, I'm like, I put my stats in. What do I, you know, what, what abilities do I take? And I basically had to make their characters for them. And, then, and since I did that, they weren't invested in it, right? Like, so, like, they, we never really got past the point of creating characters, because they just weren't interested in it anymore, because they didn't make the characters, right? They didn't design them. I had to tell them what to take. So if you're not familiar with the system, it can be really a slog to really like really get that system down and to really decide what to make a character with. And uh, you know, sometimes you'll be playing with someone who will realize that you could use the different traits in the system to get tons and tons of bonus points as long as you make them conditional and put them in a loop. They still did that wrong. They're supposed to hit him first, but <laughs> <laughs> I, the three holy A's shall never be never never one like, together no, at once no i was thinking of servant item of power magic servant item of power infinite points to make your character oh yeah well they, they actually patched that out and yeah. eventually they told them they said that they couldn't do that anymore fourth edition does not allow you to do that it actually says it in the book i have the book so <laughs> um no remember the area area aura autifier yes yes i do never again. so yeah somebody hits you and they can't be defended against and it fires, you know, X number of times based on a combat roll that doesn't matter because you're just trying to decide how many times it hits. <laughs> and then area effects, so it hits everybody. <laughs> well, and I don't know if it's still a thing in the most recent edition, but the weapon attack damage output very quickly outpaced the defense and hit points that the character could have. So it kind of became a question of who could hit hardest first as opposed to strategy. Yeah, it seems like in the latest edition of of, of uh, Bear Eyes Small Mouth, they've definitely tw dialed that back. I've noticed trying to make a character that's actually really hard to make a character that can almost always hit. Okay. And it's really hard to make a character that can almost always defend, though, too. So they've kind of like done what D&D did to kind of like shrink that, you know, that, that power level size a little bit. Um, 
They've also shrank the magic system by a shit, like a crap ton. It's it's ridiculous how much less magic stuff you can get and buy and things, which I agree with because it was kind of ridiculous sometimes. Okay, one of the uh, one of the questions that I kind of want to ask everybody is, what is a game, a role playing game that you've always wanted to play, but either you don't get to, or it ends up being one session and then never again? Amber. Okay, we never played. <laughs> we made so many characters, Elmer. Like three, I think. No, it was more than that. Actually, it's interesting that you bring up Amber because you know System Mastery just did an episode about it. Oh no way, really? Oh, we, ta- we talked about this. We another one coming out. I don't think so, but System Mastery did a review of the Diceless game. Uh, it it is not a, a complimentary review, and if you listen to it, I think they have some really good points. Like I love the IP, <laughs> but I'm not sure about you know, their attempts to turn that into a system. I almost think that it would make more sense to try to do it as like a Powered by the Apocalypse game today than to do it as a diceless system. Because that was why that system never really worked out for us because, well, first, everyone caught on to the attribute auction. So you would walk in and you'd be like, this is how many points I'm spending. I don't care who's first. Maybe (laughs) because the first auction, somebody spent 90 points on Psyche. Like, I don't know. And then uh, the... uh, so, so that that little piece of it was lost after the first game. And then, you know, actually resolving things during a game really comes down to the GM saying either you win because you're number one or you win because I like your BS better. Yeah, it, it did. Yeah, the, the is really cool. And I like the concept of like, the two sides ordering chaos and um, people. Some people can walk the patterns so they can walk between the multiverses and some people cheat and they use cards that have been imbued with the pattern, right? Like, there's all these really cool things that, like, um, especially from a book standpoint, because the, the, the literature was really cool um, and the books were really cool. But yeah, like, it really sucked that when it came down to actually playing the role-playing game, they spent so much time in making this such uniquely designed system that it ended up just falling flat. <laughs> you know, to wrap up, I wanted to give you a chance to give everybody a sneak peek at the content you're providing for the Game Master Notebook. So... Yeah. Okay. So going going back to Harbin, the city the, that's the center of like the, the campaign, um, there are... I wanted to design the city around the idea that there wasn't just one person in charge. I wanted there to be like a give and take between like multiple factions. I really like the factions from Planescape a lot, like the way that they like kind of interact with each other. There's still in Planescape, there's still one person in charge technically, but she's like she's not actually governing the city, right? Like the city is kind of being governed by these different factions controlling the different areas they're in. So I wanted there to be multiple factions in the city. So the thing I'm providing to you is the four key players. I say there's four, there's only three factions, but there's four key players in the city, and they're the leaders of each faction, plus um you know, another key player who um, I kind of designed not to be the antagonist, but they're the ones that are the movers and shapers of the actual campaign, making the big moves that the players are seeing randomly. So I'm going to provide um, one. The first thing about each one is going to be uh, what I know about them. So like what who they actually are, what their actual agendas are. And then the second part is is a going to be a like kind of like a list of things that when players find out information about them, I got to keep in mind that these are the things that I want the players to find out about them. So if they inquire about the, this person or they, or some kind of like, they, they appear sometimes in, in public, I want to keep these things in mind when I'm describing them or things that happen to them. Uh, th- th- this one thing I did want to ask you, one of the things, and I know I'm putting you on the spot, is that I do what's called a three sentence NPC. And the first sentence is the physical description 
The second sentence is what they do generally. And then the last sentence is what motivates them. Could you pick one of a one of those characters, give us their name and what they are as a three sentence NPC? Yeah, I like that. Okay. Um we I'll just pick, want to make people I'll, thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll pick Helio Ranger is this guy's name. He is what would be considered the most handsome and physically ripped elf in the entire city with the golden hair and like the shining armor and like that big that big like bravado physique for an elf in charge of the army of the um, defense of the city um, sending armies out to uh, mercenary groups out to other groups his motivation is that he actually wants complete control of the city but he has things holding him back that he needs to resolve and personal things yes. like so you said his name's Helios? Helio Ranger. Helio Ranger. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, if you guys want to learn more about this beautiful guard captain elf with, uh, you know, Megalomania, like, check out the Game Master Notebook. He's a paladin. What, well, guess what uh, religion you think he's the, uh, the, that he says he's a part of? Are you using traditional uh, D&D deities? Uh, that's actually a key thing about my campaign. All the deities exist from every setting oh i just did that in my most recent campaign but it had but it does there is a reason why but i don't want to my husband's in the room i don't want to spoil it at some point we're <laughs> going to have to have like a religions of our world discussion to, to compare but uh i'm going to guess palor no say saint oh saint and that's a throwback to josh saint cuthbert yes yep <laughs> okay so so but that's what he says to everybody that he is a paladin of but is he Next time, <laughs> I can just I, I can just see it now. The the cliffhanger. I'm thinking I'm getting big vibes of first episode of Invincible. Uh, oh God, that's one of my favorite series. Now I was so mad when it ended after eight episodes. Let me tell you, I was like, "Where's the rest of it? I want it all right now." And people are like those comics. I'm like, I don't want to read those. I want to watch it because this is good. <laughs> Thirsty for content. So thanks for taking this time to talk to us. Like we've really appreciated having you as a guest. It's awesome. Is there anything you want to plug or where can people find you online if they want to interact? Um, yeah, I've pretty much have a public facing Facebook because um, of all the work that I do in that LARP game. I have like 22,000, 2200 people on Facebook friends with me just because uh, that's where our big networking place is that we do for our game. So if you find me just on there, Craig Plazoni, I have a very unique name. So if you see my name written down, I'm like one of the like five on the, on the site um and you guys can go ahead and talk to me on there it's fine you can also find me on discord um uh, salmon reborn uh hashtag 6180 um so uh, i don't know if you can write that down somewhere for for people elmer um but uh yeah you, people can contact me there i'm going to but i would we, we have uh friends and allies of the pod page so i'll put that on there okay awesome and rodney where can they find you you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Zoggle. That's D-R-Z-O-G-G-L-E. And I have become one with the podcast. So you can find me on Twitter at Schmombrew. That's at S-H-M-O-M-B-R-E-W. Or at www.homebrewschmombrew.com. So thanks for tuning in today. And everyone add 100 experience points to your character sheet for attending. Thanks and have a great week. Thanks, guys.